A sermon on a sermon. We've been reading that sermon uh, as the day has gone on. Uh, Ken, Steve, and Nicholas, and Shay have read the sermon. And so I won't reread it uh, because it's a rather long one. Peter Peter preaches like me. He goes on and on and on. Please don't give a a like to that uh, comment. Before we start, I do want to re-highlight a a couple things I said at the very beginning um, we are in the process of kind of fine-tuning our, our kind of worship sets and the songs we're singing. And so if you, uh, if you have a song that you would like us to add, either a new song or an old song, uh, send it our way. And again, we're trying to start something called a Monday Mailbag podcast where the staff will record um, some time and we'll just answer your questions. Um, Mom, could you grab my glasses? Um, so if you have questions about the sermon, uh, theological questions, questions about the life of the church, uh, send us, thank you, uh, the questions, and we will, I don't, I don't think we're going to record one for tomorrow, but, but the plan is to release the first one next Monday for our Monday mailbag. And then lastly, uh, we'll want you, you'll want to stay tuned after communion today. Uh, we will, uh, we have a big announcement about a potential target date. So, um, let's see, yeah. Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts chapter 2 is, well, we've read it, it begins with Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. Um, They all go out in the streets and they begin to speak uh, in each other's native languages. And then Peter does what churches have done since that day. He preaches a sermon. Um, If we were to take the time and really break down the sermon, and I, I thought about today... Uh, I thought about actually not telling them this, but I thought about bringing Laura and my dad on stage, and we would get a big whiteboard, and we would just grade Peter's sermon. I decided finally not to do that, but I thought it would be fun. Maybe sometime. Um, the sermon really breaks down into, into three segments, essentially. You have the opening segment where Peter uh, uses the prophet Joel uh, to essentially talk about how this is the last days, and, and what Jesus has done has ushered in the last days. You have the second part where then Peter plays with a couple of psalms and uh, essentially what he's doing is telling us that Jesus was, uh, Jesus was part of the plan. I, I can't help but reading that section without thinking of, of the, the Joker um, and where he says, it's all part of the plan. So, so essentially what Peter was saying is Jesus was always the plan. Uh, and then on the third part, you have the section where Um, Peter essentially is talking about salvation and repentance and baptism. And so this morning, here's where I want to have some fun with you. (laughs) This is our 15th week, after all, of live streaming. Uh, I went back and totaled it. I have preached 14 out of the last 15 Sundays, which is way too much, and everyone said. (laughs) And um, I feel the effects of that, and so... Um, next week, actually, my family and I are going to get away for the weekend and get off the grid. And so, as I processed this 14th sermon out of 15 Sundays, I thought, well, what the heck? Let's just have some fun with Peter's sermon. And so today, I want to, in a similar fashion to how Peter breaks up, I want to essentially preach three sermons. I want to talk about the end times. I want to talk about the Bible. And I want to talk about repentance, salvation, and baptism. (laughs) My dad just shook his head. 
because he already knows what this, what's happening. He, Peter did that all in about seven minutes. If you read the whole oh, that's not true. If you read at the end of the text, it says, and he went on and on, which is something we preachers have a habit of doing. We are rather good at continuing to go on and on, like will probably happen this morning. <laughs> so the first part of the sermon, and if you have a Bible, I don't. We're not going to read it all. Oh, I do. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Good morning, Rick. Happy Father's Day. I just saw that you logged on. Rick, if you were still in Seattle right now, we would have a pie for you. But you're in Arizona, and I just don't have the time to drive a pie to Arizona as much as I want to. So forgive me, but I hope you're being spoiled. Acts chapter 2. This first part of the sermon, it's what uh, Ken Steve read for us. It essentially goes from verses uh, 14 till about... Let's say, it's the part where it says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, verse 21. But the highlight of this sermon is Peter is pulling from the prophet Joel. And it begins with verse 17 where it says, in the last days. So essentially what Peter is doing is preaching his best end times sermon. Uh, I got invited over to a friend's house for dinner this week because apparently in phase 1.5 and phase 2 you it's true right you can you can get together in people's homes as long as it's five or under okay it just makes me feel better to know i was following the rules um so we went and had dinner with friends this week and uh my friend as we were having dinner asked me the question sean is this the end times no joke, this week. Is this the end times? What, what is going on? COVID, all the, the racial issues. Is this the end times? And my immediate response without missing a beat was, no. Are you sure? No. I don't think this is the end times. Now let me tell you why I say no. Um, I said no because I made some assumptions by that question. And so if for my friend who asked me that question, you're watching and I assumed wrong, well, you know what happens when you assume. What I assumed was behind the question was some sort of notion of popular end times theology that has especially been popularized over the last 150 years by names like LaHaye that have terms that we don't find in the Bible, like the rapture, and and essentially follow the line of thinking that the end times essentially is the earth is going to hell in a handbasket. And typically, and again, this is probably a bit of a caricature, when you think about the end times in this way, essentially, um, a majority of folks who think about it this way believe that, well, everything's going to Hades in a handbasket, and and largely a majority of folks will not enter into salvation and will spend some sort of eternity in some sort of hellish-type place. But the saved ones will get taken into glory, right? Right? And so when I was answering my friend, Sean, are we living in the end times? Um, My answer really was no, I don't. It was really more a no based on that sort of interpretation of the end times. I don't think we're we're living in a narrative where God is at work and a majority of the, well, all the earth is going to Hades in a handbasket and only a few will be saved. I don't think we're living in a story where suddenly mass amounts of the population will somehow be raptured. 
So if you're asking me, is this the end times? No, 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 I, I, don't, I don't think that is the end times. But, but in Peter's sermon here, he seems, to, he seems to point at the Joel prophetic narrative, and in particular this notion that it's in the last days, and he seems to say that yes, in the last days, pointing to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So if my friend was to ask Peter, are we living in the last days? I think Peter would say yes. The question is, what does he mean by that? In particular, even when Peter goes on to quote Joel, and you get some of that apocalyptic imagery that he uses, like uh, in verse 19, I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be changed into darkness and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord comes. What, what is Peter saying there? Because, Sean, it pretty much feels like you're wrong. I think it's really important for us to understand how the ancient Hebrew people and how Peter in particular would have understood the last days and how they understood apocalyptic literature um, and how they understood prophetically speaking about the last days. For the ancient Hebrew people, or for Peter himself, the last days really started with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, if you were an ancient Hebrew person, um, at, a, at a kind of imaginative theological level, you believed there was this age you were inhabiting, and then there was the age to come. The crazy thing in terms of theology for Peter is that the age to come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus had broken into this age. And so for Peter, that was the inaugural moment of the end of the days. It was Jesus. It was his incarnation and all that that brought. It was his death at the hands of empire. And it was his resurrection and vindication from God that ushered in the last days that have not come in their fulfillment. But if you were to sit on a couch after having dinner and ask Peter, are we in the last days? Is this the last days? He'd probably say, yeah, yeah, we've been in them since the Christ came. The question though is, what does that mean for Peter? Is that something to be afraid of? Is that the world, the earth going to hell in a handbasket? No, 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 no. Apocalyptic literature for the ancient Hebrew people was not something to be afraid of. It was deeply hopeful. It was a reminder that God has not abandoned this place, but God is deeply actually at work in this place. So we don't have to be afraid. Conversations about the last days uh, for the Christian is not a conversation that we need to be fearful of, or really for the world. It's not to be fearful of. There's one sense we could talk about that. Hopefully I'll remember to come back to it. But it's not something to be fearful of. It is something to be hoped for because it is God at work redeeming the earth. The other thing that we need to remember in conversations about the last days is largely in the Hebrew scriptures, apocalyptic lit literature in reference to the last days is not always something that is simply predicting of a future. More often than not, and certainly I think for Peter, it is a naming of present reality. 
the naming of the ways the world is broken, the naming of the ways injustice is abound, and the naming then of the ways in which God is at work doing a new thing in a world that is unjust and a world that is unloving. So why does Peter... Hi, Tanner. Tanner just walked in the room. Uh, Why does Peter pull from the prophet Joel and tie the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit to this end times imagery? Because he's wanting to make the point that the story of the Christ is the story of God at work doing a new thing. Thanks, buddy. Father's Day oat milk latte from Tanner. Love you, dude. Yes, oat milk latte for the win. Oh, the sermon's going to get better from here. So when we talk about the end times, theologically, the conversation, if we want to do it well, is not so much a conversation about so-called raptures or the earth going to hell in a handbasket or predicting future dates. I, I, I think those conversations are mostly speculative. The deeper and I think more intriguing conversation at an end times level is where does the church see Jesus at work renewing all things? And where can we as the church prophetically name Jesus at work in the world and seek to partner with him in this restoration for the sake of justice and love. So for the Christian, it is perfectly right, appropriate, healthy, and good for us to look at those marching for justice, naming Black Lives Matter. Because we see in that movement the heart of the divine working for a reality on our earth where justice is not being met and wanting to name it and to stand in solidarity with it in the work of the restoration and redemption of all things. We don't necessarily have to affirm every line of every sentence on a website somewhere to say, yes, I see God at work and I want to partner with God in that work. That is an end times conversation worth having. Last thing on the end times. If we take seriously that God is at work bringing and doing a new thing, then that means there are going to be some old things that have to go by the wayside. So why is Peter referencing this, the moon will be turned to blood and all that? Is that to be read literally? No, 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 no. That's not how they would. Peter is not giving the sermon saying you need to read that literally. John, the pastor in Revelation, is not writing Revelation so that you can read that literally. They are using what common and ancient um, Hebrews used as a literary device to, to tell their story. They're using apocalyptic imagery not to be read literally because sometimes literal language doesn't communicate truth deep enough and far enough. Sometimes you need image and metaphor to communicate a truth that is more true than literally true. If we've been watching MSNBC and CNN and Fox News and name your favorite news channel of choice over these last few months, you have noticed in the news that there is essentially... Where is the lines? Suns have been changed to darkness. 
moons have been changed to blood. Peter isn't writing using literal language of things that will literally happen. He is using extravagant, metaphoric imagery to try and say, the world is feeling like it's being turned upside down, but have hope because God is at work. And so what I want to say to the church when you turn on the news, first of all, don't stay on it too long. It often is really, really negative. But find hope and cling to that hope because actually what we are seeing, if we will be people of hope, is God is at work redeeming and restoring this place. And the invitation for the people known as body of Christ is to partner with God who is at work. Can I get an amen? Sermon number two. Sermon number two. Let's talk about the Bible. Oat milk latte for the win. Uh, the, the second part of the sermon is the part Nicholas read so well. Thank you, Nicholas. You even had just a tinge of a little bit of German accent in there. So love that. Um, essentially, again, what I, what I said earlier, what, what Peter is doing is he's, he's trying to make the point, again, like the Joker. It's all part of the plan, right? To say Jesus has always been the plan. But it's fascinating um, what Peter does. Uh, he essentially is pulling from two or three psalms and kind of jumbling and mixing them together and, and doing what we would call pulling them out of context to make them mean something they probably didn't mean in their original context. If I was to take Peter's sermon here and essentially do what he did in my uh, Old Testament paper and turn that in in my psalms class as a paper, I would have gotten a big fat F. <laughs> Peter wouldn't, though, in his day. Because that was a common way for them to think about the scriptures. It's what we've talked about. It's called midrash. It's a dancing with the text. It's a holding loosely of the text. Not, it, it, certainly it is taking the text seriously, but it's holding it loosely. Dancing with it, always in community, engaging with this ancient text that is deeply inspired. And so for Peter, it's perfectly comfortable to take these psalms here and a psalm there a little bit out of context and mash them up, put them in a blender, and, and ultimately use them to point to Jesus. I wouldn't get away with it in the New Testament class, but Peter can in a midrash sense. And here I think is the point that I really want to highlight for us. Peter is reading the sacred text through the lens of Jesus which I think for us in the church is something we cannot hear enough. The scriptures for the body of Christ are these sacred, deeply inspired texts, but they are meant to be read through the lens of Jesus. Sean, what does that mean? It sounds good as a sermon, but you're, you're losing me here. Well, here's what that means. Let me give you an example. It means we don't read... It means we don't read every verse in the Bible as if every verse carries the same weight. So, for instance, a one-off verse in Leviticus that uses big words like abomination doesn't carry the same weight as a verse quoting Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Verses in Joshua that seem to indicate that God is perfectly comfortable with the people of God slaughtering 
entire villages, women and children, don't carry the same weight of Jesus in his epic teaching on the Sermon on the Mount saying, no, 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 love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So for the people of God, the people known as body of Christ, we read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. Interpreting the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. And so if we come across something that doesn't feel like Jesus, we interpret that through the lens of Jesus. Now it's very, it's, we have, how do I say this? It's really, really important we don't just do that as like individuals going, flying off solo. We do that through community. So through the church, we do that from within our tradition. We do that through the lens of science and history. But we interpret these sacred texts, these inspired texts, through the lens of Jesus. Not with a stilted literalism that says you have to take every verse as seriously as the next. Here's the danger of saying you need to take every verse as serious as the next. Eventually, we'll just stop reading the scriptures. And what's really scary to me on a a day like Father's Day is eventually Tanner and Parker will just think the scriptures are irrelevant. I had a friend telling me this week, yeah, I don't read the Bible that much. I understand why. They asked me then, Sean, as we were talking about all the things happening in the world, and I was articulating for them a worldview that I I hadn't really articulated maybe 10 years ago. Sean, where did you change? And their question wasn't just, when did your hair get so cool? Um... Their question really was, this shift in worldview, what happened? And my simple answer was, the Bible. Now, it's, not, it's never that simple. I married Kristen. <laughs> I hope she's not on hearing that. She probably is. Sorry, Kristen, love you. Um, but honestly, the biggest influencer, I would say, in the shift in my worldview was the Spirit inspiring the sacred text and me as an individual and me in community giving myself to the study of these sacred texts and being deeply troubled and inspired and moved and angered and frustrated and called. And so here, here really is an invitation. Especially if you're somebody who would say, yeah, I'm not sure the last time I sat down to read the Scriptures. I would challenge you to give yourself again to these sacred texts. Do away with the need to hold every verse with the same weight. Yeah, that's, that's, don't, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Do away with the need to feel like there are certain verses that certain parts of Christianity hold up and say you have to affirm this, but you, when you interpret that through the lens of Jesus, that feels a little less like Jesus and a little more like people trying to hold power. Yeah, 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 totally, get that. But if I would suggest, if you bring yourself to these ancient sacred texts, they are more relevant now than ever. If you're somebody that finds that you are deeply aligning yourself with much of what is coming from the Black Lives Matters movement, I would just so encourage you, go read the prophets. It's like the original social justice movement. Deeply inspiring. Deeply calling out places of injustice in our world. This text can change, can change the world. 
if the church will give ourselves to this ancient text, deeply inspired. So, so here's my specific challenge. Um, if you found yourself not reading the text for a while, would you in this season, maybe not as much as you watch CNN, I know, or not as much as you log on to Facebook, I know that's a big ask, but would you find 10 minutes if you're somebody like me who doesn't read well, I, I, I do not read an actual book well. About the only um, actual reading I do these days is, is commentaries. Uh, instead, the reading I do is audible. So I listen to it. And I found this week this great trick that I should have known seven years ago. They have this thing called the Bible app. And did you know the Bible app will read to you? So, so most sermons, I, I probably read the text like two or three times, and then I'm off to the commentary world. But this week I found on, on the Bible app that it'll read it to me. And it has different versions. And I think I listened to chapter 3 of the book of Acts about 21 times this week. So if you're somebody like me that struggles with reading, but you love podcasts, you love audiobook, would you this week, would you download the Bible app? And would you just commit, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to a chapter a day, or two chapters a day, or ten minutes a day. And here, if you're somebody that has found yourself um, veering off away from Scripture... Would you commit to 40 days? 40 days of either reading or listening to the text for a chapter a day, two chapters a day, 10 minutes a day, whatever you decide. 40 days. And you can't skip a day. 40 days. And here's the other thing about it. During this 40 days, do not give yourself permission. Do not give yourself permission to ask, what is this doing to me? So for 40 days, you're either spending some time reading the scriptures or listening to the scriptures without giving yourself permission to ask, what is it doing to me? At the end of the 40 days, you can begin to think, how has that shaped me? But for 40 days, you're just going to do it as a habit, giving yourself to this ancient text, allowing yourself to be shaped by it in community and, in, and, and inspired by the Spirit at work. I dare you to do it. I dare you to do it with me. And to see if this ancient library of books doesn't just speak life into not only you, but to the ways you're giving your life to the kingdom at work in the world. Does that make, is that, did I say that well? If you're wanting to do that with me, you might even put that in the, con, uh, the comments. I am somebody who often needs, needs accountability, so I'd love even to have a small group of people who would be willing to do that. Last sermon, and I gotta go quick, which means absolutely nothing, because I'm gonna be off next weekend, so this is my last chance to talk for a couple weeks. By the way, Laura... <laughs> You get to fix all the problems in this sermon next week. I'm sure, you'll do a, I'm sure you'll do an awesome job. Yes, Kathleen, no stash. No stash, sorry. The, the last part of this sermon is, is the people ask, what should we do? And Peter essentially says, you need to repent so that you can be saved and, and a part of that, then, is, of course, baptism, be baptized. And this is where I want to be careful, because my intention here is not to throw away completely the tradition that I was inherited. I am deeply thankful for my tradition. I want to raise my boys within this tradition, and there's much of it that I want them to just grasp onto. But I think there's some ways in which we've um, been taught to think, especially in the last 150 years or so in the evangelical community, about repentance and salvation, and, and in particular baptism, that has hijacked a bit what Peter was really saying here. 
Remember what Peter is saying. Um, Shay read it so well for us. And, and Shay, sorry, is it embarrassing to actually talk about you when you're not on camera? Okay, cool. Um, Peter is saying, uh, save yourself from this corrupt generation. I love the uh, Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. It's, I think he says, from this stupid generation. Um, Tanner, you're not allowed to say that word. Uh, what Peter is talking about, the context for what Peter is talking about, again, is Rome. Rome, which practices a worldview, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But how do you get the Roman peace? The Roman peace, if you actually break that down, has all sorts of economic practices, all sorts of power and military practices, all sorts of sexual practices, all sorts of socioeconomic practices that are deeply unjust and troubling. And for Peter, you have a couple of groups then that, that would have been within uh, um, his community or at least communities he'd been a part of. You would have had people who had at some level co-opted the Jewish faith with that. So you had, you had inserted kind of the Jewish faith with the Roman faith, power, um, military, and money. Or you had another group that said, no, 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 we need to isolate ourselves from them so that we can eventually wipe them out. Fight power with power. And so what Peter is saying when he says, save yourself from this corrupt generation is not, you need to get saved so you can go to heaven when you die so that you can get away from the pagans. That is, that is explicitly what he's not saying. What he is saying is that the ways of Rome the ways of co-opting faith with Roman faith, and the ways of isolating yourself from Rome so that you can attack them and kill them someday, that is a corrupt and stupid generation. And you must save yourselves from the destruction that will come with giving yourselves to any one of those ways of living in the world. So when Peter says to repent, the word repent, if you actually go into the Greek, literally means change your mind. What Peter is inviting this audience to hear is literally the invitation, change your mind. That's really tough for us to do in this modern world because we log on to our social media accounts and based on the articles we clip, click on, the, the YouTube videos we watch, the algorithms will then send us to just hear more of that same. And so if you're conservative, the algorithms are just going to shoot you to more articles about being conservative. And if you're liberal, the, the algorithms are just going to shoot you to more right, liberal articles. And the problem is, is, if all you're doing is hearing the same echo chamber, you never create space to think, I wonder if I should change my mind. But in this sermon, Peter is preaching, and what he says is, repent, change your mind. There are moments in the life of the church where we need to be reminded that having a humble posture that acknowledges we may not have everything right, including there are times in which we just need to outright repent and change our mind. I think we are seeing that come to a culmination in over these last few weeks about the ways in which we, in particular in the white church, have not done enough to affect the issue of racism. Sometimes we truly need to not just live in an echo chamber, but we need to hear the call to change 
our mind and enter into salvation. What is salvation? In the Greek, the, the, one of the literal definitions of the word salvation is liberation. Salvation, both N.T. Wright and another commentary, I'll read just a bit in a minute, um, it explicitly does not say go to heaven when you die here. That's not what Peter is saying. Again, we're not deconstructing life after death. Certainly, the resurrection of Jesus defeated death. But salvation here is a liberating from that which is anti the kingdom of God. A freedom from injustice. A freedom from the lack of love. And an entering into the baptismal waters. What is, what is baptism? It is an entering into a new community as new creation and identifying now with a new story because we are a people who have changed our mind and have been liberated from a corrupt generation. That's Peter's sermon. And largely this is my sermon on a sermon. I, I, wonder, I wonder if Andy would text Peter after the sermon was done and tell him what a good job he did. I wonder, I wonder, Sarah Moore, I wonder if this was, uh, if you had been there that day Peter was preaching the sermon. I wonder if this was one of those sermons that would really get you, or I wonder if this is one of those sermons where you try to hide the fact that you were checking your cell phone. Sorry, Sarah, I'm kind of joking. I wonder if this is one of those sermons that Peter was preaching that he would get a good eye roll from Marilyn. Or maybe, just maybe, this is one of those sermons where if Peter was preaching, it might actually get Sylvia to invite Peter over for lunch. Probably not, that never is going to happen. Peter preaches a sermon. I want to end by reading from a commentary this morning. Um, I, it's a new commentary I have. If I were to show you, I over here have a bookshelf, and I, I don't know, I must have, what, 20 to 25 commentaries on the book of Acts. Um, I, I counted recently or I went through each of them recently. And, and to my shock and awe, I shouldn't be that shocked and awe, what I found is that represented in my commentaries was all white voices. So I ordered a commentary. This is my first that I know of commentary on Acts by a gentleman by the name of Willie James Jennings. He's an African-American gentleman. And I want to close this sermon by reading what he says, a little bit of what he says on these texts, because I found it deeply moving and inspiring. Talking about the Joel and, and this sermon from Peter, he says, The famous Joel passage proclaims to us that a new world order energized by the movement of the Holy Spirit, breaking through on all flesh and destroying social orders that find slavery useful, stable, capable of making fundamental differences of identity between would-be masters and would-be slaves. These slaves, these men and women, they prophesy. God speaks through them, and they are to be obeyed. This new world order begins with a collapse. God shakes foundations, especially ones that wrongly claim divine imprint. However, it is only as Peter makes the Christological turn that he connects 
the overturning of the social order with the new order of the Spirit. He goes on to say, a change is taking place among the people of God. And it all begins with a simple but terrifying question. What should we do? These devotees of Israel's God have heard a message as disruptive as everything one could hear. It is a message that flows directly out of the divine propensity for interruption. The question they asked Peter is indeed terrifying because it begs the question of religious necessity. Why should those who are already faithful, those committed to the way of life, to religious practices and sensibilities, need to ask the question, what should we do? Their lives, our lives, already answer such questions. The question itself is at the door of offense. It suggests a necessary change for those who are already committed to faith. We must hear in this question the astounding work of the living God who will not be relegated to Israel's past, or I'll add the church's past, but will reveal divine faithfulness to ancient promises in the present moment. And in so doing, we see the precise way that Israel's Lord alters theological frames of reference by demanding more of those who believe. Here is the point of the offense. All religious faith, believes it already has God in its sight. It knows and seeks after. It tirelessly devotes time and energies and resources to the holy. Those who hear this message, however, encounter a difference born of the body of Jesus. He is a difference in Israel that will yield an intensification and alteration of the faith received. But he must be chosen. He will not destroy faith in God. He will fulfill it. But he must be chosen. Thus, Peter's response to the question instructs a moving in a fresh direction. Almost done, I swear. The trajectory of the text is not towards a formula. It is towards formation. Last paragraph. These actions mark those who are baptized as having, in, uh, and get this word, having entered into a contrast society. By the way, that's what, well, I don't know what you're going to preach on next week, but, but that's what that text is largely giving picture to, a contrast society. As Gerard Lofink calls it, a radical cell bound to the ministry of Jesus through his disciples. The words of Jesus that define those disciples' lives and ought to define ours will now give direction to these who have been filled with the Spirit. Follow me as I follow my Father. What follows from this moment is neither utopian nor unrealistic. Catch that. It is neither utopian nor unrealistic, but a clear trajectory born of the sure exposure to the divine life. What we just heard is Willie James Jennings. Mike. 
Sorry if I just broke your ears. That's the sermon. We are invited to be a people of the end times, naming in hopeful ways God at work, redeeming. We are a people called to the sacred text because we need a sacred story to remind us that Jesus has always been the plan. And we are a people who are called out of systems of power and oppression and wealth and sexuality ran rampant, called to change our minds and live into a new story, a story about a contrasting society that embodies this story, not thinking it's unrealistic or utopian, but actually with a deep-seated hope that God is at work bringing heaven to earth. Are you with me now? So as my dad comes to lead us in the sacred meal of this sacred story. Would you, would you, would you